Hello, Avril Danchak here. Welcome to Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation, taking a deep dive into all aspects of uncertainty so that clinicians can manage it better and in less stressful ways. Hello, welcome to an introduction to uncertainty in the analysing quadrant. This is Avril Danshak. I'm going to talk about the background to how we can use specific skills in analysing to help us unlock those difficult, uncertain moments when there's one clinician and one patient struggling to identify or name the problem or diagnosis. Many years ago, Sir James Spence said, The essential unit of medical practice is the occasion when, in the intimacy of the consulting room or the sick room, a person who is ill or believes himself to be ill seeks the advice of a doctor or clinician whom he trusts. This is a consultation and all else in the practice of medicine derives from it. However much we think we can replace some of this diagnostic work with AI or other digital means, most people who are ill, frightened, suffering or in pain do also want care from another individual human being. And that well-known quotation sums up the way that the practice of clinical care starts with the consultation, the seeking of advice. Ideally, when we sit down in the intimacy of the consulting room to explore a problem, the clinician's history-taking and physical examination skills will lead to a reasonable diagnosis, which in turn will enable a suitable management plan to be discussed. If no single diagnosis can be fixed upon, then often a working diagnosis or differential diagnosis may nonetheless be enough for the clinician and patient to move forwards. For example, a patient with rectal bleeding and weight loss may have cancer. They could also have inflammatory bowel disease, radiation proctitis or some other cause. However, to settle the issue and move on to the next steps, the action will be clear arrange a referral for relevant endoscopy or imaging to resolve the issue. This is not a what do you do when you don't know what to do situation. There is uncertainty about the outcome, but there is robust certainty about the process of getting there. So how do we end up in what do you do when you don't know what to do situations when trying to make a diagnosis? How does this happen and what can we do about it? The analysing quadrant explores the issues when the diagnosis is not known and there is mainly one clinician and one patient involved. This could be a newly presenting problem or a follow-up of a patient whose symptoms have changed or not resolved as expected or remain unclear in their origin. This can result in uncertainty about how to proceed, especially if the clinician is fearful of missing something or when the patient has not got the answers they were looking for. In areas where they are consciously aware of incompetence, clinicians readily ask for help, for example via referral. But where symptoms are non-specific, clinicians may often use dysfunctional strategies. One example might be premature reassurance, with the clinician saying something like, well, there is a lot of this about. And this ensures that the clinician stays in their own intellectual comfort zone avoiding the threatening feeling of inadequacy if no diagnosis is reached. However, unconscious incompetence, which the clinician may actually be unaware of, while obviously leading to mistakes or errors, 
can also mean that clinicians come up against diagnostic difficulties without being fully aware of how this situation has arisen. So I'm going to talk about the issues arising from uncertainty in the analysing quadrant and describe some of the dysfunctional ways out of uncertainty in that quadrant. And there are three main factors that can lead to a failure or sense of paralysis in the analysing quadrant. There are factors internal to the clinician themselves, factors external to the clinician and factors that arise from the patient. Let's think about internal factors first. These relate to the clinicians themselves, how they're thinking, their level of conscious and unconscious competence, their awareness of their areas of incompetence and their ability and willingness to hear and really listen to the patient, that's to say to register and evaluate effectively all the information that the patient is giving. This process can be markedly affected by the overall physical and mental health of the clinician, their experiences of and responses to stressful situations, or how they deal with pressure of work. A clinician who is distracted by her own physical pain may be less likely to make accurate diagnoses in some circumstances. A clinician's familiarity with the setting they work in, the language they are working in, and they're sensitive to local nuances of the history can also affect their ability to make a diagnosis. For example, in Zimbabwe, it's common to hear patients complain of total body pain, which is not a common complaint in the UK and would probably puzzle many UK-based clinicians. Furthermore, the clinician's overall level of confidence can affect their ability to remain engaged in working things out during the consultation. A clinician with low confidence in their ability may sort of give up too soon or get fixated on only one aspect of the problem. In contrast, an overconfident, very senior or perhaps bored clinician may have developed some reflex dysfunctional ways out of certain situations which can be more comfortable than actively engaging with difficult problems. Issues external to a clinician can also affect their ability to make a diagnosis. Time pressure is frequently cited and this is a difficult and unresolved issue. If patients have too many problems for the clinician to deal with in a short time, or if there are too many patients to see in the time available, or if a clinician is conflicted by needing to see a patient at home while also being expected to be in a multidisciplinary team meeting at the same time, then time pressures can obviously easily affect their thinking. Having many interruptions or too high a workload can affect accuracy, especially in overconfident or underconfident clinicians. However, it's not as simple as the time available. Even in some time-pressured environments, there are clinicians who use effective clinical reasoning skills to get accurate and useful diagnoses. And even when there's plenty of time, some unskilled clinicians, particularly perhaps early on in their training, may spend quite a lot of time with patients without using it effectively and without being able to use that time to create an effective diagnosis. Of course, a happy mean between overconfidence and underconfidence is not easy to achieve even after a lifetime's practice, and some would probably say especially after a lifetime's practice. Increasingly, clinicians work in highly regulated systems with defined pathways for certain symptom clusters or complexes. 
But how will the clinician act if the patient's complaints don't really fit a defined pattern or do not reach some arbitrary threshold which has been defined for referral or investigation? Sometimes the best option is not available. For example, following up someone personally within a a short timescale can be a very effective way of using a test of time of treatment, but shift patterns may make this option unavailable. Sometimes the results of investigations can be misleading or presented in ways that make interpretation more difficult. And these are all factors external to the clinician. Patient factors can also affect the ability of a clinician to make an accurate diagnosis. Perhaps the history is unclear or complicated or confusing. Patients may have more than one condition whose symptoms may overlap. Sometimes the patient's emotional or psychological issues can impede diagnosis if, for example, they're too distressed to tell their story clearly, or perhaps they may even avoid disclosing sensitive information. It is well known that some patients with cancer will deliberately choose not to disclose worrying symptoms at first and may only do so after some time. And obviously, matters to do with sexuality or embarrassing part of the body can also make patients reluctant to reveal the full information. There are other more practical issues, of course, such as language barriers, deafness, unfamiliarity with the clinician and even dementia. And these can all contribute to people finding themselves in a what do you do when you don't know what to do situation in the analysing quadrant. There's been a lot of recent psychological research exploring in depth how humans think and make decisions, which is very different to how computers think and make decisions, actually. It's well established that people think in different ways according to the task they're trying to perform and also in the context in which they're trying to do that task. Historically, there have been two main approaches recognised. These have been referred to as intuitive and analytical. And recent cognitive psychology has developed this into the dual process theory. The dual process theory is helpful when considering how clinicians make decisions about diagnoses. This theory develops from observations that humans make decisions in one of two ways. That's why it's called dual process. The first approach is often called type 1 thinking. This is the brain's preferred or default method. It's fast, automatic, unconscious, and actually quite a low effort process. For example, what would you be thinking if I tell you we're approaching a house where there's a loud noise of barking, a voice says, quiet Rover, and the door shakes as if something's trying to escape? We'd probably use our type one thinking and make the assumption that there's a dog inside, even if we can't see through the door. This type of thinking is also referred to as intuitive, unconscious or heuristic reasoning and is strongly contextualised and uses rules of thumb. This type of thinking is based on perception, overall pattern recognition and orientation to the type of problem being examined. For example, if we're approaching a noisy front door, we would tend to think it was a dog inside rather than, say, a barking wolf, because dogs are much more common behind most front doors that we're likely to approach. The second method of thinking is called type 2 thinking and by contrast it's rather slower, more deliberate. It's a consciously analytical process that takes more effort. 
For example, if we went into the house where I described before where we're expecting a dog, but then when we get there there's no dog to be seen, it might take us quite a while to work out whether it was the TV on too loud, was it a burglar alarm recording of a dog designed to put people off, were we hallucinating, or was it some other phenomenon? This more deliberate type of thinking has also been called analytical, rational or conscious reasoning. Solving a cryptic crossword clue or Sudoku are also examples of type 2 thinking in practice. A deliberate problem-solving method will usually yield better results than just a quick glance and a guess. However, all of these methods of thinking are useful in different circumstances and all have pros and cons. Being aware of the nature of the thinking processes they are using can help clinicians to deliberately choose an effective thinking strategy when they're faced with a tricky situation. This is called metacognition or thinking about thinking and it's a key skill for clinicians who are accurately assessing their own level of competence and who are self-assessing as they think about problems as they go along. Such clinicians use what Donald Schoen refers to as reflection in action. In other words, they think about what kind of thinking method will help them most as they go along. More experienced and sophisticated diagnosticians use type 1 thinking to recognise that patterns are atypical or that information available cannot be explained by an intuitive diagnosis. They will then use type 2 thinking, analytic, formal, rule-based methods to make comparisons, to weigh options and to generate more possibilities. Junior personnel often perceive expert thinkers as being very intuitive because it seems as though they come up with answers very quickly. But most experts will exhibit analytical reasoning when discussing a particular situation. And they can usually explain what they did, apparently very rapidly, as a series of very quickly performed type 2 thinking processes. Experts also freely use a mixture of intuition and analysis, and they move in both directions along a continuum from intuitive to analytical, from type 1 to type 2 thinking. The great thing about expert thinkers is they will vary their strategy according to the complexity of the task, how well ordered the time is, the time available, and whether the task is presented visually, which often favours intuition, or in a more objective quantitative form, which favours analysis in some situations. I should emphasise that some very effective type 2 thinking can be very rapid in skilled clinicians and this can give the impression that they just know the answer but actually they've been able to work out the answer quickly because of their honed skills over many years. So how can we apply our understanding of these two types of thinking when we're trying to make a diagnosis in a what do you do and you don't know what to do situation? Type 1 thinking includes our sort of gut reactions and it's quick, intuitive and low effort. And this is what we're using when we use pattern recognition, responding to familiar situations or quite often to hazards or threats. The development of rules of thumb and other shortcuts to analysis are examples of type 1 responses. For example, one rule of thumb that can be very effectively used in primary care is this. If a patient consults who has not consulted for a very long time, perhaps years, 
and then makes an effort to contact the clinician to consult them about a problem. A good rule of thumb is to think that this might be quite an important problem and not be careful of jumping to conclusions if the problem at first seems rather trivial. Someone who never comes to the doctor must have some reason for making an effort. Rules of thumb can enable experienced practitioners to recognise syndromes or situations far more quickly than less experienced people. And it's also a feature of those clinicians with good situational awareness, which I'm going to talk about later on. Typically, generalists who work in settings such as accident and emergency or general practice or psychiatry use the rapidly perceived most salient features of a clinical picture to generate early hypotheses. These are derived from a mixture of theoretical knowledge and previous experiences. And these give rise to prompt and intuitive type one thinking. Such hypotheses are not just accepted directly though, but they are then deliberately tested using a more analytical approach collecting specific further information until a reasonable decision threshold is reached. The type 1 thinking is also part of the way clinicians recognise the most important features in a patient's story and also how they identify unusual or inconsistent findings. For example, I came across one young man whose meningitis had been diagnosed because his flatmates became concerned about the way he was wandering aimlessly around the flat. It turned out that this was because he was septic and had meningitis and was rather confused. But as a presenting symptom of meningitis, wandering around the flat is not usually high up in the list. However, it's an important feature of the story which will lead an expert thinker to say, what was happening there? Why was this unusual behaviour happening? What else could have been going on? And this helps to reduce error. This kind of inner alarm bell is another way that intuitive type 1 thinking works in practice. And many clinicians will describe having a gut feeling that somebody is not quite right and needs more investigation. Attention should be paid to that with analytical type 2 thinking to try and analyse more deeply what's going on. However, type 1 thinking has downsides. It's very prone to bias and that can result in errors and mistakes. Type 1 thinking is less reliable and is affected by the thinker's emotional state and the emotional responses of those around them. Other factors include the context, the perceived difficulty and the risks associated with the decision itself. If an intuitive assessment does not yield an effective decision or diagnosis, this can result in a what you do and you don't know what to do situation quite quickly if the clinician is not able to think about their thinking and change their mode of thinking appropriately to something else. Type 1 thinking is very specific to the situation. A radiologist may be able to spot an abnormality on a chest x-ray very rapidly using pattern recognition honed by years of experience. Those skills won't necessarily help her decide what to say to her adolescent daughter who rings her up at work in floods of tears. Different skills are needed there. So why have humans adopted type 1 as the preferred default thinking strategy? Well clearly the clue is in the effortless nature of such thinking. It's quite simply easier, less tiring and requires less energy overall. 
Being able to react quickly to clues from the patient or changes in the situation around us is a helpful thing if we consider it as part of our evolutionary heritage. It's better to respond quickly to changing cues or threats rather than waiting around to see if the creature in the shadows is a leopard or a pussycat. Imagine if we actually analysed every decision we make in a day, from what to wear, to what to do when the doorbell rings, to which gear to drive to work in, which patients' records to look at first. We would be slow at assessing things and inefficient at getting through our diagnostic work. Analysing every response, reaction or decision would be tiring, slow and inefficient. Type 1 thinking is fast. So how can we actually develop effective diagnostic type 1 thinking? This is actually learned by developing a familiarity with type 2 thinking. And this is learned early in training, which then becomes so embedded that it all becomes almost like a type 1 thinking in a mind and can be done reflexly and relatively quickly. Learning to take assistance review in medical school is very slow and requires huge effort at first because it's type 2 thinking, but it becomes quicker, more reflex and more intuitive with practice, becoming more of a type 1 pattern over time. And this particularly relates to the choice of specific questions in a systemic review. Because type 2 thinking is more effortful, It's often the case that clinicians early on in their careers are more tired and more exhausted by the work they do than those who are more senior, who have developed less effortful ways of thinking about the problems that present themselves. Clinicians can find it difficult to believe that they're often working on automatic pilot, and they almost all say that they make deliberate and conscious and careful decisions. However, we often underestimate the way that in clinical practice, as we meet more and more varied presentations of illness, we build up pictures, mental representations, which are sometimes called scripts or schemas, of symptoms, signs and diagnoses that go together. These approaches result in clinicians focusing quickly on what they think are the key features and the most likely diagnoses. We can easily persuade ourselves that we have thought things through when in fact we've jumped to a type 1 conclusion. Each clinician's experience is different, and thus each clinician's collection of typical illness presentations also varies. As a result, the conclusions of type 1 thinking can be quite specific to the individual and their past experiences, and that makes those conclusions prone to biases of all kinds. When working in areas that are outside their own area of routine expertise, Clinicians may not have the same bank of clinical experience to aid pattern recognition and management decisions. For example, a cardiologist who sees a middle-aged patient with chest pain, high cholesterol, a history of hypertension and smoking, will put that information very quickly so as to seem intuitively and proceed to evaluate the patient thoroughly for ischemic heart disease. Simultaneously, they may also be registering subtle clues that the history is atypical and might point towards other diagnoses such as pericarditis, which will use his type 1 thinking alarm bell and pick up deviations from the usual patterns of ischemic heart disease. A first-year student might struggle even to elicit relevant information such as the smoking history or the effects of exercise 
and they may forget to consider other causes of a high cholesterol, such as hypothyroidism. If type 1 thinking has both benefits and weaknesses, how does type 2 analytical thinking impact on the diagnostic process? Analytical thinking can find its use in situations where there is a little more time or where the outcomes are potentially serious and where problems are complex, not clearly defined or seem to lie a little outside routine practice. In the context of what do you do and you don't know what to do situations, choosing the right kind of thinking can assist clinicians to sort out less straightforward diagnoses. This helps to manage the uncertainties of complex, unexpected or ambiguous presentations in a more structured way. Clinicians develop expertise by seeing many clinical problems, interacting with many patients, initially working through using a logical, analytical and methodical approach, which is type 2 thinking. And this particularly applies when the presentation is novel, clinicians are inexperienced or the issue is not routine to them. However, this type of thinking is more difficult and requires more effort, which may make clinicians reluctant to change their mode of thinking. For example, finding it difficult to change from type 1 to a more analytic approach may mean that a cardiologist will refer of a problem of allergic rhinitis to an ENT specialist, where a GP would have the expertise to manage it themselves, using their own type 1 approaches. This doesn't mean that cardiologists know nothing about allergic rhinitis, but it does mean that outside their own sphere, they would have to resort to an effortful type 2 thinking analysis that in practice, they tend to think is more efficiently done by somebody else. With practice, as I've said before, type 2 thinking can become rapid enough to seem like type 1 thinking to outside observers. And this is what learners admire in clinicians who just seem to know the diagnosis or who spot things that other clinicians have missed. This is usually because type 2 thinking is happening rapidly and so it seems intuitive. Digging deeper into the thinking of such clinicians will often reveal a specific attentiveness and openness to all types of information It means that they notice the information and then synthesize and analyze all the information available to them using a type 1 approach, which is subsequently tested with a type 2 analytic approach. Initially, clinicians must learn their type 2 thinking and logical analytic structures very carefully so that they actually embed sound reasoning into type 1. Otherwise, they risk not becoming more experienced but instead having the same one year's experience 20 times over. And that means they're not going to be really learning or developing. So what are the dysfunctional ways out of uncertainty in the analysing quadrant? What are the common pitfalls that can affect clinicians' thinking? I like Julian Bagini's quote here. The mark of a mature, psychologically healthy mind is indeed the ability to live with uncertainty and ambiguity, but only as much as there really is. Uncertainty is no virtue when the facts are clear, and ambiguity is obfuscation when more precise terms are applicable. If a consultation is not yielding a clear-cut diagnosis, clinicians can become stuck and paralysed in their thinking. 
This creates discomfort in the clinician who may resort to one of several dysfunctional ways out and I'm going to describe some of these now. A very common one and which can lead to error if not used cautiously is premature reassurance. Now the key word here is premature. If the patient doesn't seem especially unwell and if the clinician cannot formulate a suitable diagnosis the temptation will often be to reassure along the lines of this will probably settle or let's wait and see. Perhaps with an assumption that the symptoms are normal for the situation but that they will usually settle down. For example, it's normal to have some pain after a fracture. If a patient continues complaining of very severe pain, the temptation might be to say, well it's natural to have pain and it will probably settle down. But that can only happen if there's been some analysis of whether there's another reason why that pain might be severe. Sometimes there is some perfunctory safety netting along the lines of, well, come and see me if you don't get better. Both of these acts defer the issue and may compound the problem of diagnosis if the patient comes back to someone who may not appreciate all the details from the previous consultation. A parent may be much more aware of developing changes over time that are not apparent to a clinician who has a snapshot of a single encounter with a child who is not very well. Another dysfunctional way out is to encourage people to see, for example, a female or a male GP. In other words, somebody other than themselves. If the clinician is unfamiliar with the health issues of the opposite sex, or if they feel uncomfortable questioning a patient about intimate symptoms such as vaginal bleeding or sexual function, they may mentally opt out of the consultation and defer the issue by suggesting the patient make an appointment to see a person of the relevant sex. Although this may alleviate the clinician's initial problem, it doesn't enhance the thinking skills of the clinician who is opting out who has implicitly identified an important learning need if he thinks another clinician is the only one who can get a good history or perform a relevant examination. Male clinicians risk being de-skilled in important areas of women's health if they do this. And conversely, male patients are actually just as likely to seek the advice of a female clinician about their erectile difficulties. All clinicians have to be able to make safe assessments. Sometimes the dysfunctional way out is something more like, we'll see my colleague so-and-so who knows more about this problem. This can be a legitimate strategy, but it can also frustrate patients or sell them short by not taking things forwards in the current consultation. Seeing someone else can take time and effort which the patient may not have to spare. The issues arising for referral are going to be discussed more fully when we talk about the networking quadrant of uncertainty. Another dysfunctional way out is the way that clinicians may use investigations, tests or imaging. If the diagnosis does not seem clear, or if the clinician is reluctant to commit herself to a diagnosis, a dysfunctional way out is often to, let's just check a few blood tests on the assumption that if they are normal, there will not be too much to worry about. This may help the clinician terminate the consultation, but there is a risk of premature or inappropriate reassurance, or of simply deferring the diagnostic conundrum to the consultation when the patient is seen again, this time with normal results. However, sometimes clinicians also hope the follow-up will be with someone else, 
and that's a dysfunctional way out as well. Referral is a popular dysfunctional way out that can also backfire. If the differential is accurate, for example rectal bleeding referred to a gastroenterology service, it's likely that all will be well. However, if the presenting complaint has been insufficiently analysed or evaluated, the risk of referral is that the specialist simply rules out a problem in their own area of expertise, without necessarily ruling in a positive diagnosis. GPs encounter this problem very frequently after patients have attended accidents and emergency departments with chest pain. The diagnosis is often given no heart attack present or non-cardiac chest pain because the approach has been simply to rule something serious out. The patient who is wanting to be given a positive diagnosis will often be very unhappy to be told it's not a heart attack with no further diagnosis. They feel fobbed off by that. Similarly, referral of a patient with tiredness to an endocrinologist may result in a comment, there is no endocrine dysfunction. If the true problem is an undiagnosed depression or a functional disorder, the correct diagnosis may be missed or delayed. Being skilled in the use of referral networks is a skill in itself, and that's explored more fully when we talk about the networking quadrant. Another dysfunctional way out is called pick your favourite diagnosis. If uncertain, clinicians may try to make the symptoms fit a diagnosis they are already familiar with, ignoring information that might indicate otherwise. This selective inattention may mean that important cues or clues from the patient are overlooked. Biases of all kinds contribute to this, and we'll explore that more fully when we discuss the functional ways through in the analysing quadrant. It isn't hard, though, to see that a cardiologist will look harder for cardiac diagnoses, or that an accident and emergency clinician may focus more on things that they see commonly, exploring probability rather than possibility. Another dysfunctional way through is to make no diagnosis or not to have a problem. Another dysfunctional way out is to make no diagnosis or not to categorise the problem in a way that enables an appropriate management plan. Obviously, precise diagnosis isn't always possible. What should we call an illness with a mild fever, some achy joints and a mild sore throat that gets better after a few days? The chances are that no specific diagnosis can be made if there is no unequivocal head cold or tonsillitis. Searching diligently for viruses in this case will often draw a blank even in research settings. But we label it viral and wait for nature to do its thing and cure the patient. Many illnesses depend more on management decisions than accurate diagnosis, for example watchful waiting or test and treat. And this is a rational approach in cases of self-limiting or minor illness, while a label isn't always necessary. However, sometimes this approach is taken when the clinician finds themselves in a what-you-do-and-you-don't-know-what-to-do situation. They cannot analyse the situation reasonably, so they opt out and just hope that the patient will get better or go and see someone else. Another dysfunctional way out is to stick with a previous diagnosis along the lines of, well, you've had this before, Fred, so I think you've got it again. This is a common dysfunctional way out, which sometimes 
occurs when people go along with an established diagnosis, which may be from a previous clinician or a senior colleague, while ignoring new or inconsistent information that may seem too difficult to incorporate into the clinician's understanding. For example, a patient who has been treated for panic attacks and anxiety, who presents again with very similar symptoms, may tempt the clinician into thinking that this is a recurrence of their anxiety and needs the same sort of treatment. And this may lead them to ignore more subtle signs of something else wrong, a tremor perhaps, or evidence of weight loss, that might indicate that this time, the feelings the patient has are more attributable to hyperthyroidism. Junior staff can find it difficult to question seniors, or to assimilate new information effectively, or to go into areas where they think they have limited expertise. Older, more experienced clinicians can be prone to make areas of, of this type sometimes, as they stick to what they and their patients know and expect. So why do clinicians sometimes persist in following a particular diagnostic path, even if it isn't yielding the expected results, or if they have a small alarm bell ringing in their head saying, this doesn't really fit? Sometimes it's time pressures. Sometimes it's not being clear what the alternatives are or where to go next. And these processes can inhibit thinking. Some diagnoses are costly to make, requiring expensive tests, considerable effort, inconvenience or even danger for the patient. Sometimes clinicians are not aware of alternative diagnoses to think about. However, if the clinician allows themselves to recognise the alarm bell and accept the cognitive dissonance which is implicit in a what-you-do-and-you-don't-know-what-to-do situation, this can be the metacognition, the thinking about thinking, that resolves the situation. Recognition and acceptance of uncertainty allows for deeper thinking and actually prevents dysfunctional ways out. Medical error does occur when people are sure they do know what to do, then they go ahead without being aware that they are using a type 1 response that doesn't apply. And this usually happens because of various biases in thinking that type 1 thinking favours. Another dysfunctional way out is to focus on only one aspect of the problem. If the situation is complicated, it may seem tempting to focus on the more straightforward aspects. This is also known as cognitive anchoring or anchoring bias. Picking up on the first bit of information that suggests a familiar pathway dissipates the uncomfortable feelings that clinicians get when they are uncertain. The clinician then gets on with assessing a problem that they're familiar or comfortable with. So if the first thing the patient mentions is chest pain, then the clinician may evaluate that and think to themselves, let's do an ECG, rather than waiting a bit longer and taking notice at other aspects that could indicate other diagnoses. Perhaps the patient has poor sleep, anhedonia, weight loss and suicidal thoughts. These need attention too. One effect of this dysfunctional way out is that the patient may not be reassured and they may not accept the diagnosis, even for apparently minor symptoms. This is because if the clinician does not pay enough attention to the patient's concerns about what might happen or the patient's own ideas about what the clinician should do, then the patient is often unhappy and will seek repeated consultations And these are very wasteful of everybody's time and effort. So in conclusion, 
It is the task of the clinician to interpret illness narratives from patients and to assess the nature of the problem and the likelihood of disease. It is no mean feat to do this consistently and accurately. This is especially true when the patient's symptoms do not fall into neat categories or into the typical descriptions of the textbooks, in other words, when things are uncertain. All diagnosis requires judgment. Which symptoms are the most important? Which physical signs are the most salient? And which test results are the most important ones to take note of? The clinician's judgment about diagnosis may be of even more importance when the patient has already done their own first level of interpretation via the internet. The many misconceptions and misunderstandings that follow from the application of information without diagnostic skills highlights the complexity and sophistication of diagnostic thinking which has not been replicated by any AI programme. In the complex arena of modern medicine, the evaluation of clinical performance is not simply about avoiding error, because there will always be some honest error. The appropriate response to complexity and uncertainty is not a complacent faith and intuitive judgment. Rather, we need to learn and use the right skills to make a deeper and more accurate analysis. The key skills which enable functional ways through in the analysing quadrant are these. Hypothetico-deductive reasoning using restricted rule-out. Ruling in or ruling out with diagnostic safety netting. Trusting and verifying. Sharing the clinical reasoning process with the patient. Using clinical guidelines, algorithms and decision tools effectively. Exploring the emotional content of the consultation using situational awareness skills and widening the view and exploring functional symptoms. These functional ways through uncertainty in the analysing quadrant are going to be discussed in detail in following podcasts built round typical case scenarios to help everybody explore the thinking skills that can help so much. Thank you for listening to Talk 12 on managing uncertainty in consultations. Make sure to get all the episodes by subscribing to the Talc Talks podcast on Podbean or your other podcast provider. All the podcasts and the other teaching and learning consultation skills materials are available at consultationskills.com. Our book, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do? by myself, Avril Danchak, Alison Lee and Geraldine Murphy is available online and through all good bookshops.